weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Today's sermon comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another through songs, hymns, and spiritual songs singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. Um, turn to me to Colossians chapter 3. I uh, have two goals for us this morning. As we look at Colossians chapter 3 and verses uh, 1 to 17. Um, um, I'd like for all of us to be mocked by humble joy. Humble joy because um, what is it that we have that we have not received? Everything that we have, Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4, just tells us the, num the, the, the blessings that we have received from Christ. And that produces humility because we are not bringing anything here. We're the ones who have received but as we receive, we are mocked by joy. So humble joy. But we don't want to be just mocked by humble joy. The church consists of a group of people who are mocked by humble hope. That as we look ahead, and it's going to be a year since um, Emmanuel Church of Orange County. Did I say that right? Of Orange County um, Covenant. It's going to be a year. As you look ahead to weeks and months and years from now, God willing, you want to be marked by humble hope because as you look ahead, you recognize that unless the Lord builds the church, 
There's nothing more forward to look forward to. And so we aren't the ones to look. We, are, we don't want to be looking at ourselves as we look ahead. When we're looking at God, which is a sign of humility, but we are hopeful as we see God uh, in the future. And so humble hope and humble joy as we look at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. If you're taking down notes, I've got two points for us. Um, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Uh, Paul talks about the gift of our union with Christ. In chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, second point is about the fruit of our union with Christ. The gift of our union with Christ and the fruit of our union with Christ. So look with me to chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Our union with Christ is a gift. And, and Paul explains that before he talks about the effect or the fruit of our union with Christ. He talks about what is true of us before he talks about how we are to live as Christians. This church, the church at Colossae, was, was facing an issue. False teachers tried to influence the church to move past Christ, to look beyond Christ. And so Paul shouts, no, don't do that. By presenting Christ in chapters 1 and 2, he says Christ is our sovereign Savior. And that's in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he talks about our sufficient Savior. Jesus is our sufficient Savior. And after having proved that, these false teachers and whatever they teach is just marked by folly and weakness. He tells them toward the end of chapter 2, do not take our eyes off Jesus. Because we, as Christians, cannot live without Christ. And that's the end of chapter 2. Now, we might expect, after Paul having said all, all these things, to say, therefore, do these things, do these things, a list of to-dos. But before he tells us how we are to live, he begins by talking about our union with Christ. He did that in chapter 2, but now he says it again in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Sort of serves as a reminder. We all need reminders as God's people that apart from Christ, we have nothing, we are nothing, and we can do nothing. So what is this union with Christ? Look at those expressions in verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, raised with Christ. Verse 3, for you die, your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4, you will also appear with Christ in glory. There has been a, a death with Christ, a resurrection with Christ. That's the language of union with Christ. There's this, this bond that is so strong and so unique that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are placed into Christ. Christ dwells in us, of course, we're placed into Christ that we participate in what Christ actually did so that Christ's experience becomes ours. It's as though we died and we rose to a new life by virtue of our union with Christ. The, the union means that Jesus' death is my death. I died with Jesus. Jesus' burial is my burial too. I was buried with Christ. Jesus' resurrection is mine. I was raised with Christ, raised to a new life, freed from sin's dominion over me. Sin can make no claims of me anymore because I've been raised to newness of life. You have died, 3 verse 3a. You were raised, 3 verse 1. You have life, 3 verse 3, second part. And in fact, verse 3 says Christ is our life. He goes on to say that we, in verse 3, we, our lives are hidden with Christ hidden with Christ. Um, that the Christians are people who are hidden with Christ. The, the, you, can't, you cannot see it's hidden. That's the point. A pastor say, you know, explained this 
so well, uh, he says, think, think about a flower, right? Think about a flower. Um, there are things we can see and there are things that we cannot see. We really can't see, they're hidden, uh, how the, the plant derives nu nutrients from the soil and how those nutrients contribute to the growth of the stem, the leaves, the buds, and the petals. But what we can see are the buds, the green leaves and the colorful flower. That's the evidence of life. What is visible are the colors. What is there for us to experience is the experience of fragrance. And in the same way, our placement in Christ cannot be seen. But what can be seen are the effects of our union with Christ, of Christ's work in us, which is what the rest of the chapter is all about. Right? We are hidden in Christ. But here's the beauty of of, of what this union with Christ actually means. Right? Look, look at verse 3. Jesus as our life will be revealed. It's our life with Christ is hidden, but Jesus as our life will be revealed. Verse 3. Sorry, verse 4. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear revealed with him in glory, made visible. One day sin will be removed from this body and this hiddenness will come to an end. Christ will make himself visible and be glorified in us. And we, God's people, will glow with glorified bodies with the glory of the Lord. That is our future, friends. What is visible, invisible now, hidden now, will be made known. We have been raised with Christ in the past. We are hidden with Christ now. And we will be revealed with Christ in the future. Look at the tense. It doesn't say we were hidden or that we will be hidden. It says we are hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ, always. It's an interesting language. You are, you, you are hidden with Christ in God. Look at Psalm 27, verse 5, Psalm 31, verse 20, and Psalm 32, verse 7, where the psalmist talks about God being our hiding place. God will hide me, says the psalmist. God will conceal me. He hides me in the protection of his presence in Psalm 32. He says, God is my hiding place. So this hiddenness isn't some random concept out there. It is as though God personally takes upon himself the role of protecting his people in keeping them till Christ returns and then he reveals Christ in us. God himself takes that responsibility. And so Christians are actually people who are safe and secure in the gracious, mighty grip of God. So we don't live from fear, but from confidence. Jesus is the guarantee that we will receive glory in the future, friends. Jesus, it will be made visible. It will be. So we don't live from fear. So when, when the frustrations of life and the pains of life and the groanings, Romans 8, our, our, our experiences that we, we are possibly going through right now. I don't know. Uh, we are tempted to ask if God has abandoned us or God is just far from us or God cannot see what is going on. God, God is nowhere near us. That's the temptation for us to, to, the way to respond, to think about God. He's just far from us and we can be angry and we can be upset and we can live as though there is no hope for us now or even in the future. Look at this verse. We are safe. We are safe and we are secure in this mighty, in the mighty grip of God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, it's interesting that because Christ is our life, we have a new orientation. Look at verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ, 
So if you've been raised with Christ, which is true by faith, seek the things above. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. We should seek the things that are above because Christ is our life. New life comes with new orientations. When Christ is our life, we seek things that are above. We will think, we will set our minds and our hearts and things above. We will allow our lives to be shaped by the realities of things that are above because Christ is our life. Or as one pastor says, we will seek them, want them, pursue them, hold on to them, cherish them, treasure them, love them because we've been given a new life. New life comes with new orientations. And just to clarify, we are not to seek after heavenly stuff. Like, you know, those streets of gold and crowns that we put on our head. That's not what Paul is saying. But to seek things, pursue things regarding Christ. And here's the clue. It says that Christ is seated on the right hand of God. And so if you look at the New Testament and observe what writers of the New Testament has to say about, uh, implies or means by that expression, he is seated at the right hand of God. Look at Hebrews 1 verse 3. Hebrews 10 verse 12 clearly tells us that Jesus has finished the work on behalf of his people. So we aren't here trying to finish what Christ could not finish. Christ has finished and therefore he is seated, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. What needs to be done for our salvation is done. It's over. It's finished. So there's nothing for us to, to, to finish for Christ. He's done it all and he's taking us to be with him. Set your minds on truths about what Jesus has done for you. He's finished it. But that's not all. Romans 8 tells us, using the same language, that Jesus, as our Savior there in heaven, isn't just wasting his time there in heaven. He's interceding for his people. So the fact that he's seated on, on that seat there, on the throne at the right hand of God there in Romans 8, tells us that Jesus is interceding for his people. We have a Savior there in heaven who is really interceding on our behalf. Set your minds on things about where Christ is. Fix your eyes on Jesus, in other words. And Paul isn't saying, guys, try to do this. You know, you've got to make your heart um, work at your heart so that your heart begins to set its affections on things above. No. I think what Paul is saying is, since you've been raised with Christ and Christ is your life, you will set your, life, set your minds and your heart on things above. People who love Christ are people who have Christ as their life. They are people who set their minds on Christ, who is seated on the throne above. So you take Christ out, and heaven has no value. You take Christ out, and the things above have no power to please. You take Jesus out, and those heavenly things lose its charm. Maybe, maybe we as Christians should possibly s slow down and identify those earthly things that hinder us from seeing Christ above. Is there any earthly entanglement that has blinded us from seeing the glories of Christ above? Any worldly attractions that is distracting us from Christ as though there is something here that is much better than Christ? And so there's, there's something that we are something that we're distracted by making us take our minds off Christ. Any fleshly fondness competing with Christ in our hearts. Maybe we should ask that question. 
This is the gift of our union with Jesus. When Jesus is alive, our hearts will treasure him. And it is our enjoyment of Jesus that will move us and energize us and strengthen us to hate and kill sin. The next section. So Paul says, meditate on the glory of new life in Christ. Think about what hidden with Christ means for us. Celebrate our security. Joyfully expect and hope for Jesus' appearance. As one pastor says, it's our pleasure in God that gives us power for purity. The gift of union with Christ. We will begin to set our minds on things about where Christ is. But Paul, having reminded us of our union with Christ, moves on to the fruit of union with Christ, which is verses 5 to 17. What is the evidence that we have received new life? What is the evidence that Jesus, Christian life, is Christ living in us? Christ living his life in us. I have been crucified with Christ. is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is the evidence? I said a few minutes back that our union with Christ is something that's hidden to the world, but the fragrance uh, of being in Christ is experienced as a community. Where will you find Jesus at work? Here. The church. Here, among his people. The church is a Christ-treasuring community, and its effects will be visible. What are those visible signs? If you look at five verses, sorry, chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, you'll see that Paul talks about two things. There are certain things that God's people will hate, and there are certain things that God's people will love. Right? So if you look at verses 5 to 10, the first part of verse 10, um, God's people hate sin. They hate sin. This is the fruit of Jesus living in us. We begin to hate sin. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore, in light of the change that's happened within us, put to death, kill, wage war with sin, be killing. Don't let sin live in you. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. He talks about those sins in verses 5, verse 8, and verse 9. But why should Christians have this take on sin? Why should we kill sin? Look at verse 6. Because God's wrath is on the disobedient. Habitually sinful people are disobedient people. Disobedient to God. And disobedient people await God's judgment. But mercy has rescued us from that kind of life and gave us a new life. We kill sin because we are not who we were. We were children marked by disobedience. But now we are children of obedience because Jesus is our life. That's why we kill sin. What, what a strong language. God's wrath is coming upon disobedient people. Isn't it? God's judgment is on those people who disobey God. Um, the Bible says that's true of everyone. People who are disobedient to God are people who reject God. People who reject God are enemies of God. And in the Bible, the enemies of God receive the judgment of God. God-haters receive the judgment of God. But you see, that is not, that's just part of the story of the Bible, that the enemies of God will receive the judgment of God. The Bible also talks about the mercy of God. The mercy of God is seen in the Son of God, who takes upon himself the judgment of God that the enemies of God were supposed to receive. And the Son of God, having tasted embraced and absorbed God's judgment completely is now offering forgiveness to those sinners who come to God in Christ. There is forgiveness that's available. And so this God 
whose judgment should actually be on all of humanity, offers his mercy through his son who will come to what his son has done on behalf of sinners in faith. They receive the forgiveness of God. But God's people hate sin because they've been rescued from the judgment of God. They are marked by obedience. But did you also notice that Paul says that you, we, we have this stand on sin, we have this take on sin because we have died to our past lives. So look at verse 10 and look at verse 9. We have put on this new self by putting off this old self. Our old self was a life of sin and there's been a break, a separation, a death to that kind of life. We kill sin because we've parted ways with sin. Sin is not what defines us, so we kill sin. Meaning, if it's a place, don't go there. If it's a website, close it. If it's a movie, don't watch it. If it's a book, don't get it. If it's a person, part ways. This killing, this putting away may be uncomfortable, even painful. And it's okay even if it's painful because according to Jesus, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. But look at these sinful traits in verse 5. And in verse 9, 8 9. Both of these sins deal, deal with how we treat people. Look at verse 5. The weight here seems to be on sexual sins, and they all come from evil desires and evil impulse and urginess. They are deceitful desires. Paul says, kill those sins at the time this desire is born. And when those desires are entertained, they make us engage in these kind of sexual sins. Maybe it's sexting, it's impurity, says Paul. Looking at people and wanting people with a lustful desire. That's evil desire. In fact, Paul climaxes that verse with the word greed. And greed, he says, is idolatry. Greed stems from pride. Believes that everything, including all other people, exists to make me happy. To give us pleasure. It's an overwhelming desire to have and to take using deceptive means for self-satisfaction. Greedy people are never content. They want more and they will take more. It is idolatry because greed is rooted in self-worship. So it will take anything, even if it means the rejection of God, for self-satisfaction. That's why greed is idolatry. In other words, Paul seems to be saying, if you're struggling with sexual immorality, that, that particular kind of sin, you're struggling with all other sins mentioned in verse 5. And if you are your God, God's judgment awaits you. Paul says in verse 6. But he moves from sins that take advantage of people to sins that insult other people. Verses 8 and 9. These sins in verses 8 and 9, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language may mouth, including lying in verse 9, destroy the unity of a church. When people yell at others, when we criticize others, when we use words with an intent to harm, when we gossip to hurt others' reputation, when we speak lies about others intending to harm their reputation, when we use abusive words to cause pain to others intentionally, we are dividing the church of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Paul ends with the word lying? And that seems to be an odd word, right? But if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, don't lie. You should be marked by truthfulness. You should speak the truth because you are members of one another. Meaning, since you're all one in Christ, you don't want to be marked by lying because lying actually divides. Lying is done to deceive others and it does not unite. It actually divides. 
You don't want to divide what Christ has united with your words by lying. Put away, Paul says, those practices. They belong to your old self, a life you have died to. Or maybe it is that some of us are wrestling this morning with some of these sexual sins. And as I said, if you're struggling with one, you're struggling with all other sexual sins. Kill it, Paul says, because engaging in it is disobedience to God. Christians are not people who play with sin. They are people who wage war with sin. They kill sin. Maybe it is the latter sins that some of us struggle with. Sinful speech. Maybe you don't realize it, but your speech is against the oneness that Jesus created, according to Ephesians 4. Consider Ephesians 4 and how God wants us to speak. Don't let any unwholesome words come out of our mouth, but words that would build, will give grace. Words that build, not words that break, and divide, or hurt. Words that will build one another, the church. Christians are people who, because Jesus is their life, and because they treasure Jesus, they hate sin. That's the fruit of our union in Christ. We hate sin. We take a stand regarding sin. We kill sin. We don't let it live, linger. We kill it. But Christians are people who hate sin. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. But Christians are also people who are marked by love. 3 verses 10 to 17. They are a group of people who actually love certain things. What are the things they love? Look at 10b. They are people who love being conformed to Jesus. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. The church is a community of people who are being renewed. We are being renewed from within, transformed from within. We are a community of God who are being renewed every day into the image of God. Now, it says, according to the image of your creator, who is this person? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. According to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Romans chapter 8, God is conforming us into the image of his son. The renewal of God here in chapter 3 verse 10 then means that God is making us look like Jesus. But notice, notice the means that God uses here. Look carefully at verse 10. Uh, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Christian renewal, growth, transformation cannot happen without knowledge. Knowledge of Jesus. Because we love God's image in Jesus, all that Jesus is, and because we want to be like Jesus, and because we understand that knowledge of Jesus is a means for us to become like Jesus, we pursue knowing Jesus. Did you know that this is on your website in the mission statement? Knowing Jesus and making Jesus known? Clearly knowing that I'm pretty sure that Jason had in mind from the, the New Testament the, the idea of being related to Jesus by making him known. But it also includes that the idea that unless we know Jesus, we will not want to become like Jesus. They are connected. Making Jesus known and, sorry, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. One flows from the other. But not knowing is the enemy of Christian growth. And our churches need to have a hunger to know Jesus. I agree. That's a good question to ask ourselves. Maybe after the service. What is it that 
we have learned about Jesus that um, is helping us this week, as encouraging us this week. What's this one thing about Jesus that you read that you want to know more about Jesus? How do we know this about Jesus? What is it? And because we love God's image in Jesus, because we love who Jesus is, and because we love Christ-likeness, we pursue knowing this person, Jesus. But we don't just, we're not the kind of people who just love knowing Jesus, love looking like Jesus. We also love the oneness that Jesus has created. Look at verses 11 onwards. In Christ, there is no Greek or a Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. See, the world is just marked by distinctions, separations, the kind that makes us feel superior, inferior, jealous or puffed up about ourselves. It could be the color of our skin, it could be the race, it could be social standing, it could be our educational qualifications, it could be our economic status, it could be the company that we work in, it could be the neighborhood that we live in. Paul says, in God's new creation, in the church, in Christ, there is no such distinction. But really, no, no um, Greek and uh, Jew, like, no racial distinctions. Circumcision and uncircumcision, no religious separation. Barbarian Cynthia, no educational distinctions. Slave and free, no distinctions in the church when it comes to social standing, economic status. Like really, you don't, you, don't, you don't have these things in the church, right? So what is unique about the church is that they don't brag about these ethnic differences or language differences or, or, or intellect or culture or social status. It's that these distinctions don't matter when it comes to our standing before God, really. Like if I, if two of us were to go before God and say, God, I, I'm a seminarian. I actually finished my PhD from Master's Seminary or from Southern Seminary. And the other person says, I just came to faith six months back and I, 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 just, I just joined Emmanuel Church of Orange County. And the seminarian says, God, I, don't I deserve a better standing before you? God says, no. Actually, God says, so what if you went to seminary? So what? Because the only grounds on which I can accept you is by being in my son, Christ Jesus. Those things, those distinctions and those separations have died. Now, he's not suggesting that in the church, Gentiles become Jews and Jews become Gentiles. He's not even suggesting that slaves are no longer slaves. These distinctions don't disappear once we come to Christ. It's that these distinctions have no weight in the church. Like, they really don't matter. Christ is all. And he is in all. Now the Indian society is divided into four groups of people. The Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas, and the Shudras. Please don't take this down. <laughs> These are four classes of people in India. Right? The Brahmins are the most higher class of people. They are the intellectuals. and They will be placed in government officers, really well placed in the government. Even today, Kshatriyas are the warriors, the rulers, the Vaishyas are the traders, the business people, the Shudras are the menial people, and then you have people who don't fit into this category, they are the outcasts, they are the untouchables, actually the unlookables, you don't even look at them. They're the Dalits. Now the gospel came to India 
And the gospel uh, proclaimed, the, the gospel that people proclaimed was honor that all of us, irrespective of our social standing, uh, receive honor from God. We are all equal in Christ. But this division is so prevalent in India that there are different churches for different people. In fact, I know of churches where if there is a person from a lower caste who actually had the, the, the bread before someone from the higher caste had, the higher caste person would not participate in the Lord's Supper. When at the supper we are actually celebrating the oneness we have in Christ. You have different seating arrangements for people, even now. And so, when we moved to India, to Kerala, we asked uh, two of our friends, actually three of our friends, to educate us about the history of our land and its culture, and he taught us all these things. The name of the person who taught us this was Girish, Dr. Girish. Actually, he comes from an untouchable background. He finished his PhD in cultural studies. The guy who sat next to him in the class, listening to him teach, was Jay Krishnan, a Brahmin, the highest of the class, who came to Christ. Only the gospel can bring these two brothers together and have them sit right next to each other and have the person who was from the untouchable category teach and the other person listen. Only the gospel can create that kind of relationship because the gospel breaks all these human barriers. Now, both these brothers went to the central part of India to visit a church. In that church, they met a person named Krishnan, who actually comes again from an untouchable background, North Indian, speaks Hindi. And Krishnan, who comes from the untouchable uh, category, came to faith. He saw Jay Krishnan. Jay Krishnan said, my name was Jay Krishnan. And immediately, Krishnan from North India just stepped back. Just stepped back. This is inside the church steps back. Because all his life he's been taught he's nothing. He's got no value. Must be kept away from higher class people. And Jack Krishnan, seeing this, after having come to Christ, he goes to this, to Krishnan, who comes from this backward community, from this untouchable category, hugs him and says, you are my brother in Christ. That's the power of gospel that no earthly minds can create. These barriers are ones that earthly people have created, these separations, color, race, creed, and whatnot, I don't know. They've died in Christ. In Christ, these things don't matter because Christ is all and in all. Now, I don't know what it is for you guys here, but do you have those barriers, those earthly barriers in your heart hindering you from a relationship with someone else that you find hard to just go to that person? But yet, maybe you call that person brother or sister in Christ? It is actually an insult to Christ to call someone a brother or sister in Christ but not treat him like one. It insults the work of Christ in uniting us. You see, once we gloried in our ethnicity, but now Christ is all. Once we gloried in our skin color, but now Christ is all. Once what united us was wealth and intelligence and coolness and education, but then those things died. And now Christ lives in this new community. Christ is important. It's not our smartness, not our works, not our social standing, not our family name, not our color, not our ethnicity. We enjoy each other because we see Christ first and not our color or our culture. Christ is all, in all, and overall. In 
fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 12, we consider the identity that Christ has earned as God's chosen ones, he says. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved people, we are God's people by God's choice, not our choice. That should produce humility in us. And what is the effect of God's choice? We are separated for God, holy, again, by God's choice. Because of God's choice, we are now holy unto God, separated unto God, belonging to God. We are also dearly loved by God, treasured. God deeply loves every single one of his chosen ones. All of us are beloved sons and daughters of God. This is important because it not only affects our affections for God, it also affects our affections for each other. So in verses 12 onwards, Paul says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another, forgiveness, and so on. Now, each of these traits have to do with how we treat one another in Christ. So he says, put on compassion. Not being stationary, right? Not being unaffected by needs, um, but moved to help the needy from a heart full of pity. That's the heart of God. Being kind, not seeking harm, not just wishing good, but doing good. Not wanting service from others, but being humble, looking for opportunities to serve. Not being harsh, but gentle. Not impatiently intolerant, but willing to put up with offenses. Bearing with one another. Not holding grudges against one another, but wanting to forgive others. And we do this because that's how Jesus dealt with us. He has forgiven us our sins. He did not treat us the way we actually deserve. You see what being renewed according to the image of Jesus looks like? It produces a Jesus-like community. Renewed in the image of Jesus. And Paul summarizes all these traits in verse 14. He says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, I don't think what Paul is saying here is you add to all these things something called love. Do you actually want to see what loving community looks like? Look at verses 12 and 13. Love is compassionate. It is kind. It's marked by humility. It's gentle. Puts up with others. It is willing to forgive others. And it actually does forgive others. Love keeps unity in mind. Its foundation is unity and its goal is unity. Love has this binding effect or unifying effect. Because Christians in the church have experienced this kind of love from God. They want to be marked by this kind of love toward other people in the church. So they don't want these dividing walls inside the church. That is the old self. We are the new self right now. People who have experienced the peace from heaven. God made peace with man through his son Jesus. He made peace. He says in verse 15, let that rule your hearts. Let it take hold of your hearts and move us to those who look different from us, think different from us, and even eat different from us. Let the peace of Christ direct us to one another. Look at the last part of verse 15, friends. It says, in one body. In one body. That's interesting, right? You were called, you were also called in one body. Meaning, Jesus created that oneness. Here's the thing. We don't get to decide who we will be at peace with. Jesus does. So we welcome each other because we see Jesus' work in making us one. And so the priest of Christ rules our hearts and moves us to one another. And we act out of compassion, kindness, and gentleness, and humility. I actually saw this last week in our church. A thorn in Tongham 
married couple from the northeastern part of India look totally different from us, South Indians. Eat totally different food. Have three kids. The oldest child, Cheng Cheng, is three years old. Abner is one, years, one year old. Daisy is four months old. Both the husband and wife had to be separated from their kids because they were struggling with some kind of sickness. And high fever, they were hospitalized. What happens to the kids? Not like the pastor suddenly wrote to the, an email to the members saying, we actually need volunteers. We only announced hospitalization. People just ran, moved to this family and acted to love. I actually saw that one family who's got a son who is two years old, struggling with club food, sleeps with dad and mom at night. They took Daisy, who is four months old, for four days, fed her, gave a bath, took care of her, separated from her parents. They became parents for her. That's what happens. The peace of Christ rules their heart. Oh, you've got two more siblings. Cheng uh, Cheng is three years, and then there is Abner, who is one year old. What about them? Well, another couple, one of our pastors, took on these two older kids and had them sleep with them, the pastor and his wife, and they fed them, took care of them like their parents. Both these families became parents to these kids. They look totally different. They eat totally different. But Christ united us. And so we do these kind of things. In fact, you know something? The hospital staff started asking, why is it that you guys come to meet this family? Because they look totally different from us. What a testimony to the power of grace. Now, I didn't see that just in the city of Kochi in our church. I saw this here yesterday. I saw compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. I saw it actually visible yesterday when, when one of your members actually came uninvited to your pastor's house. Her name is Grace. She actually came, <laughs> she actually came with a cake and she bought some ice cream. She actually came because the family met with an accident this week and she came to just be with them. What was it that moved her heart to just come and be with this family and spend the whole evening with them? It was the peace of Christ that moved her heart, that ruled her heart to come and just be with these people. That's just love controlling our hearts. See, this is what happens when our community becomes Jesus-like. We want to be with those people who are affected. And we enjoy, you know, it was, this, it was a unique experience for me just to watch it. I experienced it last week in our church and I got to see it and experience it from a distance here in Orange County. God's people love the oneness that God has created, and they do things like this. But you see, God's people don't just love looking like Jesus. They don't just love the oneness that Jesus has created. They also love listening to Christ. So look at verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell among you. The word of Christ is the word about Christ. All that has been revealed about Jesus in the scriptures, who he is in his redemptive work, his power, his authority, his promises, and his glory. The, the, Paul says the word of Christ must find its home among us. Be constantly at the center of what we do when we gather. That's why we sing songs about Jesus and we pray prayers in confession of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so he says it must dwell richly among us. Take every effort to see that it informs what we believe and how we live as God's people. And so we've got to allow the word of Christ to richly dwell among us. Let it dwell richly among us. In our midst, 
And let it have authority over our lives together. Let it give us the wisdom and power to enable us to live as one body. Let it comfort us when we are discouraged. And let it warn us when we sin. And let it give us hope when we are confused. And let it direct us when we are conflicted. Let it strengthen us when we are weak. And let it give us the fear of God when we fear man. Let it instruct our hearts when we lack faith. Let the word of Christ richly dwell among us. So that truths about Christ will be sung and taught and preached and explained and applied. And when we sing, let it be about Christ. When we pray, let it be in the name of Christ. When we confess, let it be the work of Christ that's our comfort. When we, when we counsel people, let it be Christ that they hear. When we're helping someone fight sin, let it be Christ that we point to. May they flee to the person of Jesus after seeing Jesus upon hearing Jesus. There is hope, rich hope, when the word of Christ is sown in the church of God. There is no hope in a Christless gathering. And so we want the word of Christ to be richly dwelling when the church of God gathers. Paul knows that there will be sin among us. There will be false thinkings and talks and assumptions that will cause us to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from the unity that Jesus has created. The only way to fight this is by allowing the truths about Jesus to dwell among us. Church. Emmanuel Church, we can't move on from Christ. The church exists because of Christ. The church is built by Christ and our church life is centered around Christ. And we want to be a church that therefore sows the word of Christ fully, richly, intensely and wisely. Do you want to see people leave church with hope? Preach Christ. Do you want to see restful hearts in the church? Sing Christ. Do you want to see people flee from sin? Teach the word of Christ. Do you want to see people walk by faith? Sing the promises of Christ. Do you want to see marriages grow? Bring them the word of Christ. Do you want to see forgiveness happening in the church? Teach them the cross of Christ. Do you, do you want to see people fight condemnation and guilt? Bring them the mercy of Christ. Do you want to see people celebrate the gospel of Jesus? Bring them Christ. The church of Jesus Christ listens to Christ. And it loves the word of Christ to richly dwell among them. Oh, that we would leave every Sunday gathering, every men's Bible study, women's Bible study, every discipleship meeting, having heard Christ, received Christ, resting in Christ, because the word of Christ has richly been sown among us. Now, I missed out intentionally a word from this passage. It's the word thankful which is mentioned three times in this passage. Be thankful. Verse 15. The church of Jesus is a thankful community. But thankful for what? For the mercy of God, for the plan of God, for the new creation of God, the church. A Jesus treasuring community is a grateful community. They regularly take time to remind themselves of the mercy that they have received, of the mercy that has worked to bring them together, making them one in mercy that keeps renewing God's people into the image of Jesus. You see, that's an effect of allowing the word of Christ to richly dwell among us. And even in this, God is the deciding factor because unless we see God, we will not be thankful. In this fast-paced life, let me encourage Emmanuel Church members to just pause and ask the question, where is God's hand at work among us? Do you see that? Well, you heard the story of what happened yesterday. That is God at work. What are some changes that I've seen awfully in the lives of people? When I see members moving to another, is that God at work? Yeah. 
Where are people progressing? Where do I see compassion? Where do I see love, forgiveness, patience, forbearance? Where? And what is my response when I see it? Well, the Bible says, be thankful. A Jesus treasuring church is a thankful church. So friends, let me encourage you toward humble joy and humble hope. You guys are here for a purpose, to be a light to the nations around you. Here, consider Jesus. May he produce humble joy in you. Consider Jesus. May he give you humble hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for Emmanuel Church of Orange County. We thank you that it pleased you to sovereignly work in the lives of many people here and bring them together and to see this church be born here. We pray, therefore, that this church will, because they have been raised to new life and because you are their life, that they will set their minds and think about where Christ is that they will allow the words of Christ to richly dwell among them. That they'll be marked by people who, in whose hearts the peace of Christ rules and who move to another because they've tasted the love of God. And we pray, God, that through their witness, many more will come to know Jesus as the sovereign Savior and the sufficient Savior. We are weak without you. We can do nothing without you. And so we pray that you will help each one of us. We pray that we will love Christ-likeness and we will hate sin. And through that, we pray, through your work, we pray, God, like what Barnabas saw in the church in Antioch, that when people come here, they will see the power and the grace of God at work. And we ask you because only you can do this. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.